Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. So I just had a chance to talk with Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences, familiar voice and face on the Global Medical Device Podcast. On this episode, we talked about pre-submission. Yeah, if you've listened to Mike and I chat before, we often mention the benefits of pre-sub and how they can be super helpful and add value to your medical device product's journey to get to market. We get into a little bit more depth and detail as to the contents of a pre-submission on this episode. And one of my favorite things that Mike shared comes at the end, the whole thing's meaningful and worthwhile. But at the end, he shares the key thing that he does when crafting a pre-submission, and I wrote it down, so bear with me, is he justifies why the company is doing their particular thing and taking their particular approach, which, you know, that makes great sense. He also justifies why they are not doing something else. So to summarize that, here's why we are doing X, and here's why we are not doing Y. So really great advice, but I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Joining me today is a familiar voice and now becoming a familiar face with Global Medical Device Podcast listeners is Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. For sure. And I thought generally after we have our podcast, I'll give people a little bit of a glimpse into some of the inside baseball that you and I have. But we always talk about like after we record this session, we're going to say, all right, when are we going to do this again? What are some topics? So we have this back and forth. And you had a good suggestion the other day. You and I have talked a lot about pre-submissions, mini episodes, but we haven't really gotten into the logistics or the mechanics of the contents of a pre-submission. So I think it's a great thing to do today. So maybe a good place to start is remind folks what a pre-submission, I think the the official term from FDA, if I recall, is a Q-submission. I don't know why we have two different words, but what is a pre-submission and when do you think a company should consider requesting one? Yeah, great question, John. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and your audience about a very important topic, and that is communication with the FDA. In this particular case, communication in the form of a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub. You're right. Some people refer to this historically as a Q-sub. It really doesn't matter. Shakespeare said a rosemary the name still smells as sweet. So what we call it, I don't really care. What's more important is that we actually do it. So simply put, a pre-submission meeting is an opportunity to talk to the FDA before you actually make your submission, whether it's a 510K or de novo or PMA, what have you. And before we get into the details of it, John, out of curiosity, do you want to take a guess how many pre-sub meetings were requested by the industry with FDA last year in 2020? Throw out a number. What do you think? Wow. First of all, I didn't actually realize that this was uh, data that was tracked and, and available. Um, let's see. There's usually about five to 6,000 or so 510Ks. I'm doing a quick mental math in my head. There's usually a few dozen PMAs, et cetera, et cetera. A thousand. Let's go with a thousand. Well, great guess, John. And you're right. This is tracked as part of the Manufa requirements. The statistics are updated quarterly on FDA's website. We can provide a link to that information as part of the podcast. But last year in 2020, there were 3,306 were submitted to the FDA. And this year alone in 2021, thus far, there were a little over 1,500. So clearly the popularity of the program is increasing as, yeah. you know, over what it was a few years 
years ago. Although, interestingly enough, John, to parse those statistics a tiny bit further, not all pre-submission requests uh, actually involve an actual meeting. Mm. About two-thirds of those 3,300 in last year, two-thirds of them actually requested a meeting. The other one-third, the communication with the agency was just via written vision and email. And in my opinion, John, I don't want to say that's a mistake, but that's a missed opportunity to say the least. I oh, for always, sure. always, always request a meeting with the FDA as part of my pre-sub. I can't think of an exception to that rule, John. Now, today, as everybody knows with COVID, the meetings are being held virtually via teleconference, kind of like yeah. you and I are speaking right now. But I always request a meeting. And just a tiny bit more statistics that the audience might be interested in, John, because these are questions that companies ask me all the time. How long does it take to get a response from the FDA for a pre-sub? Now, I've averaged these out across the different types of pre-subs, but the average time for a written response from FDA is about 62 days or about yeah, two months. So pretty... between the time FDA actually receiving your pre-sub package and getting a response from the agency, I would figure roughly about two months, sometimes a little less, but that's the average. Well, um, and just on that, if I recall, that's pretty close to the window in which the FDA is charged with responding anyway, right? I think if I recall, like from time of submission to hearing a response, it's supposed to be 60 days. Is that right? Well, it depends on the type of pre-sub. Oh, there are about okay, a right. half a dozen different types of yeah. pre-sub. I'm not sure if it's necessary to get into those words. And to be honest with you, John, whatever numbers that are in the guidance and for the benefit of the audience, FDA did update the pre-sub guidance. The most current version is from January of this okay. year. So well, January we'll provide a link 20, to that. 2021. Those numbers are pure theory. Yeah. 100% theory. What I'm giving you is the reality. Okay. There's a big difference between the theory <laughs> and the reality. No. Uh, <laughs> another thing that, you know, I should mention, because, you know, some people don't understand this, is a pre-sub is purely optional. It is never required. So a company can choose to do a pre-sub or not, but it's almost always my advice to a company. In other words, prior to making the actual submission, I will almost always recommend doing a pre-sub first for a whole bunch of reasons, which I would be happy to get into to John. But the only time that I don't recommend a pre-sub is if the submission is what I consider to be a slam dunk submission. In other words, there's no questions about the regulatory pathway, maybe a 510k. There's no questions about what's predicate or the product code. There's no questions about the testing. There's no questions about the clinical data. There's no questions about anything. That would be what I consider a slam dunk submission. And as you can imagine, John, in the 30 years that I've been playing this game, very rarely do I get involved with what I consider to be a slam dunk submission. So I almost always suggest to my customers a pre-sub meeting. And I'll share with you some other statistics that I've shared with you before, John. When you look at 510Ks that are submitted to the FDA today in 2021, about 75% of them are rejected first yeah. time out of the box. And it's crazy that that's still the case, but it is still, still the, case. the case. It is still <laughs> the case. And in the 510K world of those 75% that are rejected, 85% approximately, the numbers fluctuate a little bit, but not much, about 85% of them are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. And for those in the audience that are working in the class three and the PMA universe, the statistics are even worse 
worse. Wow. About 89% of PMAs are rejected first time out of the box. They result in what are called major deficiency letters. Bottom line, John, no matter how you slice it, I think that statistics are appalling. They're embarrassing as an industry. I think we as an industry have evolved, not evolved, but evolved to the point of essentially treating FDA as our elementary school teacher. Yeah. In other words, here's my homework assignment. You please yeah. mark it up and give it back to me. And I don't know about you, John, but that, my opinion, that is not the way this game is supposed to be played. Yeah. So the biggest advantage of having a pre-sub, which again, optional, not required, is greatly mitigating, if not completely eliminating those statistics. I just shared with you, John. One last thing, and I would love to have your thoughts on this, but I pride myself in being in the minority, not the majority. In other words, I am not in the 75 to 80, the 11 to 25%. And there's a lot of ingredients that go into my secret sauce to that, but the most important is communication with the agency in advance of the submission, whether it's in the form of a pre-sub or something else, it doesn't matter, but communication. What do you think, before we get into the nitty-gritty details, what do you think of that, John? Well, I have a few reactions. First, this, the number of pre-sub. I'm surprised, pleasantly. I am glad to hear that the program is growing in popularity, so that's good. It seems to me, I, I mean, I grew up in this industry in the era where, you know, you threw it over the wall to the FDA. <laughs> and you didn't ask questions and you crossed your fingers and you hoped and that sort of thing. And that's a terrible strategy. So, you know, when the pre-sub program came out, I was like, folks, this is amazing. You know, from a regulatory perspective, this is the best thing since sliced bread because you get that opportunity to have an audience with FDA. I totally agree with you that get a meeting, the verbal exchange, especially the face-to-face -face exchange and second best video exchange or video conference exchange is really good because I think there's some statistic out there that 80% of communication is nonverbal. So you get to yep. kind of pick up on those sorts of things. So it's really great. And the cost is reasonable. It's free. I mean, except from that's my time and my team's time <laughs> to put one together. But you know, I think as far as things go, this is a no brainer. Like, yep. why would you not do this? Those are my reasons. Well, that's a good point, John. So first of all, you're exactly right. One of the questions that companies ask me, is there a cost associated with the pre-sub? Unlike 510k and PMA submissions, unlike 513g requests and, and so on, there is no user fee associated with the pre-sub, although at least not yet. Although give Congress a little bit of time, I'm sure they'll add one. They're missing a tremendous opportunity considering the numbers of pre-subs that are happening, but at least there is no user fee. So the only cost to the company would be the time and effort to put into the pre-sub. And if you do it properly, John, a lot of the information that you put together that goes into the pre-sub will be repurposed right into your submission oh, absolutely. down the road. So absolutely. it's not an academic exercise. And one other thing that I wanted to mention quickly, John, since you just mentioned the video, one of my huge frustrations when I have meetings with companies is people have video meetings where their videos are turned off. Yeah. Drives me absolutely nuts. I know. Absolutely nuts. I'm a little old fashioned, John, but I like to look people in the eye face to face because you're absolutely. exactly right. So much of communication is nonverbal. So much. And if we were having a meeting in a physical room like we would before COVID, you know, we would be able to see that. I'll share with you a quick story just happened to me recently, John. I was doing a pre-sub with the FDA. One of the reviewers was doing the meeting. I swear to God, John, this is a true story from the grocery store. Oh my goodness. Because in the background, I heard cleanup on aisle 12. Yeah. The, the... I, I was livid. I mean, how unprofessional can you yeah. be? Now I said to the company, we should lodge a formal complaint because I think this was just unbelievable. Of course, the company didn't want to do that. Yeah. They said, no, no, no. But I believe, John, in treating other people as professionals with respect, but I also expect that to be a two-way street. Absolutely. And, and if we were in building 66 at FDA, 
having the pre-sub meeting as we did prior to COVID, this would have not happened. There would not have been a cleanup on aisle three. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of COVID, I know like in the 510k world, COVID has had a pretty significant impact on submission in FDA and that sort of thing for lots of reasons. We won't get into all of those today. I've also heard that this was maybe a month or two ago that divisions within FDA that review IVD submissions have already communicated, we are not accepting any more pre-submissions for the rest of 2021. So aside from the IVD world, is COVID having an impact on pre-submissions from your point of view? Yeah, great question, John. The short answer is yes. In some cases, subs have been delayed. For example, I've gotten responses back from the FDA. We can evaluate this right now. We're putting it on kind of hold. It's going to be a minimum of about 120 days or four months before we can get to it. In some cases, they've been flat out rejected. And you're exactly right. It's happening in the areas, divisions in CDRH that are being most heavily impacted by COVID. IVDs in vitro diagnostics are one of the two branches. The other branch that's being impacted significantly is the respiratory branch. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, so these are the two areas within CDRH that are absolutely getting slammed. And I can understand, you know, like everybody, you know, all organizations, we only have a certain amount of bandwidth. And I can understand if FDA needs to delay, in some cases, flat out reject a presum. What I don't understand, John, and this is a huge frustration of mine, is FDA, as far as I know, and I don't think I'm wrong about this, they have not announced anything publicly about this. So why should a company spend so much time and money preparing and submitting a pre-sub only find out that FDA doesn't yeah. have the time or the bandwidth or the resources to address. As a matter of fact, John, I have reached out, as you know, I have a number of personal friends of mine in the agency. Mm -hmm. I have talked to division director and branch chiefs. I won't mention people's names, obviously, to find out, hey, can you just give me indication if I submit a pre-sub to your particular branch, will it be accepted? They basically tell me off the record because they can't say anything officially because FDA has has not announced anything about this officially. Right. But off the record, it's up to the division director or the branch chief at that particular time when the pre-sub is submitted to make that determination if they have that bandwidth or not. So I understand completely COVID is having big impact on everybody, including FDA. I understand that. What I don't understand is that these things are not being discussed publicly. People yeah. talk about transparency, but I don't see any transparency here. Well, I guess, curious question. In the cases where it's being rejected, are you having to wait 62 days to find out about that rejection? Or is this something that's happening <laughs> relatively well, soon there after submitting? Yeah, and that's a great question, John. Fortunately, at least in my experience, and as you know, John, I do a lot of pre-subs on average right. one a month, if not more. I've not had to wait 62 days to find out that they're not going to have a pre-sub. Usually if they can't have a pre-sub or if there's going to be a delay, I find out within several days or a week or something like that. Believe me, if I had to wait two months <laughs> and then they told me that we're not going to have a meeting, that would be, oh, I uh, yeah, don't even get uh, started yeah. on that one. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other thing that is a little curious to me, I mean, positive, I think part of this, to your point earlier, like you said, the activity of preparing a pre-submission is not purely academic. So even if company prepares pre-submission and for whatever reason it's like rejected, you didn't lose anything. You know, it's still a valuable exercise, right? So absolutely correct, yeah. John. And kudos to you for looking at the glass being half full <laughs> as opposed to half empty. But you understand the point. You know, yeah. if FDA is going to be limited on resources, and again, I completely understand there needs to be a public disclosure of that. And companies should have a formal mechanism where they can reach out to the FDA. They shouldn't have to do it informally through yeah. people like me. I mean, I have relationships with people. So most of my 
communication with the agency is actually not formal, but rather informal. But a lot of people don't have those relationships, John. They should have the ability to find out, maybe not to a hundred degree of certainty, but is it likely that FDA, the particular group within FDA that they will be talking to, is it likely that they will be able to have a pre-sub within a reasonable period of time? I mean, how I don't awesome think that's would it an be? Unreasonable question, John. I know this is crazy talk here, but how awesome would it be if FDA had dashboards where you know? But anyway, I digress. All right, so moving on to more of the substance of pre-submission. How do you define success when you're going through a pre-sub activity? I mean, maybe one measure of success is yes, it didn't get rejected. We're actually going through the process, <laughs> but I guess a little bit more in depth. You know, when you work with companies, how do you determine what is a successful pre-submission? Yeah, great question, John. So as we talked about earlier, there are a lot of pre-subs that are happening with the agency, but in my opinion, most of them are not successful, not successful. So the question is, what is a success pre-sub? My Mike Drew's definition of a successful pre-sub, quite frankly, is when everybody walks out of the room agreeing with me. That is an achievable goal. I've had some pre-subs actually that were so successful. FDA agreed with everything that we said that the company decided that, oh, gee, it's not necessary to have a meeting because we all agree, right? So, but if you apply that criteria across the board in our industry, John, I hate to say it, but most pre-subs are not successful. As a matter of fact, I'll share with you one other quick story, John. After one of my pre-subs, this was a little while ago prior to COVID, I was in the room with the company and the senior VP, uh, ranking person from the company came up to me after the meeting and he said, Mike, the pre-sub went great. FDA essentially agreed with most everything that we said. Let me ask you a question. Do you think we over-prepared? Because we spent a lot in preparing for this meeting. And I said, gee, that's a good question, but let me ask you a question. If the meeting didn't go so well, would you have asked me the same question? So to have a successful (laughs) pre-sub, in other words- That's a funny story, actually. Well, I appreciate it. it. Yeah, some irony to it. You're right, John, but it is possible by my definition of success, it is possible to have a successful pre-sub, but it does take a significant amount of time and effort to achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so you mentioned the guidance document has been updated in January, 2020. And folks, we will provide a link to that guidance document in the show notes for this episode. I've read that document. I think it's clear enough, but I guess for those folks listening along at home, what are the contents? What should be included in a pre-sub and how much detail and information should I have? I mean, I guess I'll bundle a few questions in here together. I'm often asked, oh, or actually the reaction is often, oh, I'm way too early for a pre-submission. So what are your thoughts and reactions to that? Uh, Great question questions, John. First of all, I'm not going to insult the audience intelligence by reading the guidance. Let me give you my, you know, Mike Drew's response in terms of what goes into a pre-sub. But I'm just curious, John, you mentioned that you read the pre-sub. Did you happen to look what is on the cover of that pre-sub? And that is specifically final guidance. Why the heck heck is FDA still perpetuating this terminology of draft versus final when it comes to any guidance? It just boggles my mind. I mean, anybody thinks that there's not going to be another guidance at some point in the future on pre-subs, give me whatever it is that you're smoking because, you know, I want... Revision control. I mean, this is is something we do in industry. I mean, manage your versions and revisions of documents. Not that big a deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But more importantly, in terms of the content of the pre-sub, look, it's very, very simple. You have to give FDA enough information about your device, what it does, how it works, your testing methodology, your clinical data plan, your regulatory strategy, all those things that 
that you want to talk about in order to sit down and have an intelligent conversation about your device. That's it. It's as simple as that, right? FDA, you know, breaks out the pre-sub into different sections and so on. Quite frankly, you can follow their advice or not, how you organize it. I could care less. What's much more important is you have to give them enough information to have an intelligent conversation about whatever it is that you're wanting to discuss. Yeah. Because this is the first time that the reviewers are seeing your device. Now, let me take my advice a step further, John, because one of the most common questions I get is what exactly do we put into the pre-sub? You can read the guidance from now until the sun burns out. Like all regulation, it's not going to answer that question. So here's my Mike Drew's advice. Every single sentence, every single word, every single punctuation mark should be put into your document for one reason and one reason only. And that is to help FDA come to the answer to whatever question that you're asking that you want them to come to the answer to. In other words, it's yeah. what the lawyers call ask a leading question. Leading the witness. That's, that's what I was going to say. Leading I mean, the witness. it's that's, your story. You know, that, this is what I tell exactly people. Right. Like, this pre-submission is an opportunity for you to tell your story, what you're trying to do, why it's important, and those sorts of things. That's why you have the audience with FDA is to communicate and articulate your story about your products and your, your devices and your plans going forward. That's exactly right. And as you know, John, from reading that guidance, there are only three requirements of requesting a pre-sub. One of them, which makes my blood pressure go up every time I read it, is you must ask FDA questions, which to me, it puts us into a condescending kind of a position, but yeah. treating FDA as my school teacher, as my professor, and I look at them as my equal, but I don't put them on a pedestal by any means, right? So my advice to companies is want to ask them leading questions. As I said, everything that goes into your document should be put in there for one reason and one reason only, to help FDA come to the answer to the question that you want them to come to. And one other yeah. thing about the guidance, John, as you know from the guidance, FDA provides long laundry list of example questions that one might ask in a pre-sub. Well, suffice it to say, John, I would never in a million years use <laughs> any of those questions because they think uh, they're absolutely they terrible are, questions they, they, for they a bad. whole bunch of reasons. Let me pause you for a moment. And so tell your story and the contents of the pre-sub. And then the questions should be telling your story. You're leading the witness. The question is the opportunity to get the witness to, I guess, answer in the way that you want them to. And I, I always warn people when they ask questions, like, sorry, there are a lot of really dumb questions. And I think there are a lot of really dumb questions that could be put into a pre-submission. Don't ask things like, do you agree that this is a good predicate? Should I file a 510K? And those sorts of things. Those are not useful questions in the grand scheme of things. But you know, you've got this audience with the FDA and there needs to be art in those questions. This is not a yes, no question. Most of the time, you know, you're trying to extract from the agency that they get the message that you were trying to communicate. I warn people, beware of what you ask mm -hmm. because how you ask that question, you may get an answer that you don't like. <laughs> And that's part of my job as a regulatory consultant, John, is to mitigate that chances of getting that answer that you don't like. As a matter of fact, this is what I call controlling the discussion. Leading the witness, as you said a moment ago, is the very appropriate metaphor. I want to chime in. Though. I don't want people to think that that's some sort of nefarious thing, right? So we're not suggesting that you do something sketchy, you know, leading the witness because you know about your product and your story and what you're trying to do a million times more than any FDA reviewer will ever know it. 
Correct. Um, and to your point, John, and I apologize if I, you know, putting the wrong kind of a spin on this, because I don't mean to be nefarious in any way. Right. That's not my intention. I just wanted to clarify that. That's No, the- no, but let me explain further, because I think this is an important point for our audience to understand. One of the ways that a lot of companies begin their questions, as you just did a moment ago, does FDA agree that dot, dot, dot? Quite frankly, I don't care if they agree or not. That's not the objective here. The way that I just start these questions is, and please notice how I parse my words, John, because I'm doing so very carefully. Based on my labeling and my technology, has the company demonstrated that the 510K is the most appropriate pathway? Based on my labeling and my technology, has the company demonstrated that the testing matrix is appropriate? Based on the labeling and technology, have we demonstrated that a clinical trial is not necessary? And here's the reasons why, or a clinical trial is necessary, and here's the reasons why. So that's exactly what I mean by phrasing the question properly and leading the witness. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, does FDA agree? Because once again, that's putting them in a position of, you know, being a teacher or something like that, you know, grading my Right. That's not the objective. I'm sorry, you're going to ask FDA to agree. Chances are they're going to take the most conservative angle, you know, if you say, oh, does FDA agree that I don't need this or blah, blah, blah. And I'll give you a perfect example example, you know, one of the three common objectives that I have in virtually all of my pre-subs is the clinical data. And so as you and your audience know, I work as a consultant for the agency. So I'm on the FDA side of the table well sometimes. And I've seen companies come in and basically ask the FDA the question, do you think I should do a clinical trial? Well, what do you think FDA is going to say? Of course you should do a clinical trial and you should use, you know, 500 million patients, right? Of course, I'm exaggerating for to to make it a point. Slightly, yes, but yes. (laughs) So instead, you know, the way I phrase that question is based on the device's labeling and technology, have we demonstrated that a clinical trial is not necessary and here are the reasons why? Or based on our labeling and technology, has the company demonstrated that a clinical trial is necessary? And this is a clinical trial design executive summary of what it's going to look like, right? And speaking of the questions, Sean, the three common questions that I typically ask in virtually all of my pre-subs are as follows. Objective number one is on the regulatory strategy and the pathway to market. In other words, have I demonstrated that it's a 510K, OVO, or a PMA, or whatever? That's objective but, number one. But based on, not just saying, again, I want to reiterate this, FDA, should I file a 510K? FDA, how about a de novo? I mean, you're saying, based on the information we just shared with you about the labeling, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Does FDA agree that this path, that we've demonstrated that this is the, the path, right? Correct. And as a matter of fact, John, let me thank you for asking or pointing that out because let me take it a step further. When I go to the FDA and I say, based on my labeling technology, have I demonstrated that the 510K is the appropriate path? I usually don't stop there. The second sentence is, have I demonstrated that a de novo is not necessary? Ah, see, that's the secret sauce. Yeah. And similarly, when I go with a de novo, I say, you know, have I demonstrated that the de novo is a appropriate? And have I further demonstrated that Mm -hmm. the A is not necessary? Why am I doing this, Chuck? And most companies are not doing this, but this is exactly why most pre-subs are not successful because I want to give FDA not just every opportunity to agree with me, but I also want to give them every opportunity to disagree with me. In other words, I see so many people make this assumption, John. They do a pre-sub with the FDA. They say a certain thing didn't come up. FDA didn't raise a certain question. Therefore, you know, there's no question to be asked. I don't make that assumption. I want to make sure, I want to be explicit as I possibly can. Like I said, I want to give them every opportunity, not just to agree, but to disagree. So what we're talking about, John, you know, I've used the metaphor, you know, the poker game many, many times, you know, the company and the FDA is a poker game 
represents. What we're talking about here, John, are not the rules of poker, because you can read those rules of the guidance. What we're talking about here is the strategy, how to win the game. That you are not going to find in the guidance. That you are not going to find by listening to a podcast from FDA or anywhere else. That's what you are going to hear when you listen to our podcast and when you right. listen to the webinars that I do, because I go beyond just the rules of the game. We talk about the strategy. Right. So that's a great point. So just to close the loop on that, because I think yeah. we got to wrap this up soon, yeah. is objective number one is usually the regulatory strategy, 510K, de novo, PMA, what have you. Objective number two is usually on the testing matrix, because mm -hmm. one of the most common reasons why submissions are rejected is because a company does a certain number of tests and they submit it to the FDA and FDA throws the submission back in their face because FDA says, well, we want you to do these one or two additional tests. <laughs> yes. Very amateur mistake. It's an yes. elementary mistake. And it can be greatly mitigated, if not completely avoided, by presenting your testing matrix, all of the tests that you're done or planning to do in support of your submission. Now, another thing that people should understand, it's FDA's policy, and I agree with them on this, that they will not review data during the pre-sub. That actually occurs at the point of the submission. But what they should and what they will review is your plan to collect the data, the testing matrix, such that as long as you do all of these tests and the data shows what you say that it's going to show, then and that's enough to get the ball rolling. Yeah. Can I give a reaction to objective two? Please, absolutely. So I just think it's a good business sense, number one, because just about any medical device that you're going to design and develop and hope to bring to market has probably some type of testing component to it in some way, shape, or form. Usually that is the most expensive or some of the more expensive things that you're going to do during the design and development of that. Yep. And if you just make carte blanche decision that says, well, we're going to do everything under the sun, that's not pragmatic. It's not useful to anyone. And then if you take a minimalist approach and you don't find out until time that you submit five 510k or other type of regulatory submission and you get questions back, you thought you were at the end of the game and now you're really back in the middle or maybe the beginning. So pre-sub is generally more something that you do early on, not always, but generally something you would do early on. So getting some feedback on your testing approach, I think just makes great business sense. Well, I agree with you, John, and let me take that example one step further. You're exactly right. Testing can be time-consuming and expensive, but imagine that happening in a clinical trial. In other words, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen, especially in some of the largest medical companies on earth, and I just laugh when this happens because it's a, such an amateur mistake. They do a clinical trial without vetting it with the FDA first because it's a non-significant risk device and they're not required to. So they submit it to the FDA and FDA says, gee, we would like to see these additional one or two and now they yeah. have to do a whole clinical trial over again to collect that information. Can you say ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching? Mm -hmm. This is such an amateur mistake, and it can be so greatly mitigated if completely avoided by, as you suggested, John, taking it to the FDA in advance in the form of a pre-sub or however you want. So objective one is usually the regulatory strategy. Objective two is usually the testing matrix. The third objective that's common in most all of my pre-subs is the clinical data plan. In other words, we are yeah. not going to do a clinical trial and here are the reasons why, or we are going to do a clinical trial and here's the reasons why. And it's interesting, John, you know, some companies that I work with, they say, well, we're not planning on doing a clinical trial, but we don't want to bring that up with the FDA as part of our pre because they say, well, if the FDA expects to see a clinical trial, they're going to say that during the pre sub Why would a company <laughs> make that assumption? Remember, know. John, as I said earlier, well, <laughs> I don't either, but so many companies do. Why Silence is not a scent in these scenarios. <laughs> like I said, I want to give FDA not just every opportunity to agree with me, but also to disagree yeah. with me. 
if my strategy is not to do a clinical trial, and as you know, John, in the medical device world, unlike in the drug world, clinical trials are uncommon. They're the exception rather than the rule. Right. But if you're not planning on doing a clinical trial, why not bring that up as part of your pre-sub just to make sure that FDA sees Absolutely. it the same way? Because if you make your submission without bringing it up and FDA says, gee, that's great. Now show us your clinical data. Mm. And you're like a deer in the headlights. I mean, it's amazing. Again, it's the wrong time, time to find out. Wrong if, time if you're to at find that stage. out. And one last thing that I'll say on that last point, John, oftentimes when I see a medical device company come in and say to the FDA, we're not going to do a clinical trial, they give some excuses. But at the end of the day, John, it's a thinly veiled excuse that they don't want to do a clinical trial because they don't want to spend the time and the money to do it. And right. even if that's true, that's not legitimate excuse excuse for not right. doing a clinical trial. So here's the way I phrase it. If I were to do a clinical trial, what additional information would I gain that I don't already have from the literature, from comparisons mm -hmm. to uh, other devices like a predicate, from subject matter experts, and so on and so on. In other words, I'm not arguing that I'm not going to do a clinical trial. Instead, I'm arguing that if I do it, I'm not gaining any additional or new information. So what Yeah, there needs to be a value element to it. Exactly correct. Yeah, yeah. Exactly correct. So those are the three main objectives that I have in most of my pre-subs. In some pre-subs, we'll add additional objectives depending on you know what sure. the goals of the company are. But the last thing that I'll mention on the objectives, John, there's no place anywhere in the entire pre-sub process to draw more attention to something than to put it as a pre-sub objective and a question. Mm -hmm. So I've seen some companies go in literally with like 18 or 20 or more different objectives. And in my opinion, that's a huge mistake. Now, on the yeah. flip side, I also, one of my FDA reviewer friends shared with me an example where they had a company come in with one objective in like 60 subparts. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you can add these things up in many different ways, but I think you and your audience, John, appreciate, you know, what I'm trying to explain here All right. uh, in terms of those three. No, things. that's very helpful. I appreciate the, the objective. So super helpful. Any final thoughts on the topic? I know you could go on for days on the topic <laughs> of pre-switch I, I, because I know you're very passionate about this vehicle, I guess, or or tool and the value that a company can achieve from this done properly anyway. But any final thoughts on pre-subs before we wrap up this episode? Yeah, well, again, Jen, I appreciate the fact that you say that I'm passionate about this topic. I guess I'm passionate because I see so many companies yeah. running into so many delays and making still so got many work mistakes to do, right? that most of them are just totally avoidable, you know, totally avoidable. So yeah. to wrap this up, and we've talked about some of these issues, not just today, but in the past, John, don't treat the FDA as your element entry school team. Here's my homework assignment. Will you please mark it up and give it back to me? This brings me to my regulatory mantra, and that is tell, don't ask, lead, don't yeah. follow. Go yeah. into the FDA with the pre-sub. Here's my device. This is the way that it works. This is my regulatory strategy. This is my testing matrix and so on and so on. And, you know, be very confident, not just here's what I'm going to do. You know, this is another thing that differentiates my approach from so many others, John. I like to not just justify what I'm going to do, but I also justify what I'm not going to do. Because again, I want to give FDA every opportunity, not just to agree, but to disagree with mm -hmm. me. But here's what I'm going to do, and here are all the reasons why, and here's what I'm not going to do, and here are the reasons why. And if you do this in advance of your submission, I can just about guarantee, because this is not theory to me, this is everyday reality, can guarantee that your mission is going to go through the agency with far fewer delays, far fewer questions than if you don't have this communication yeah. with them in That's, advance. I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I, the biggest thing that I picked up, and it seems so obvious after you say it, is that last 
last little bit. You know, oftentimes when I ask a question, you know, I'm asking it about this certain thing that I'm interested in. I don't think about the other use cases or p- possible scenarios. So I think that's very, very important. So I appreciate you sharing that. Folks, Mike Drews, like he is very passionate for reasons shared, but to reiterate, we have a lot of opportunity for improvement in our industry. And both Mike and I in our own respective worlds and practices and areas of expertise are trying to make a difference, trying to improve upon a really great opportunity for the world. You know, why not do the best that you possibly can to bring your products and technologies to the market? And why not think about this from a more strategic, holistic perspective? Stop treating regulatory agencies as a checkbox and your teacher and those sorts of things. You want to think about things a little bit differently and improve upon your practices, especially when it comes to pre-submissions and all things regulatory. Well, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences is your person. So reach out to him. He'd be happy to have a conversation with you. And of course, if you want to build your entire architecture of your processes and procedures and quality management system, well, that's where Greenlight Guru comes in. We have the only medical device success platform on the market today designed specifically, exclusively, and only for medical device companies. That's right. You can manage your design and development, your risk, your document management, and all of your post-market quality events, things like campus and complaints, all in a single source of truth. So go check it out, www.greenlight.guru. Be happy to have a conversation with you. As always, I want to thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. It's because of you that this podcast is still the number one podcast in the medical device industry. So thank you. Continue to spread the word. And until next time, this is the host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Oh,